But I'm glad you're here, and uh, I'm glad that you thought it worthwhile uh, to spend the next hour with us as we think about biblical discipleship. So I told you last week we've kind of shifted in our series on the church from what the church is to what the church does. Last week we talked about biblical worship. This is the task of, church, of the church to God. And today we're talking about biblical discipleship. This is the task of the church to one another. So what ought we be doing together? We ought to be growing in our faith in Christ, ought to be growing in our obedience to him, ought to be growing in our practical holiness as we become more and more like Jesus. So find, if you have your Bible, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 9 this morning. But as you're getting there, I'll just say a few things about discipleship. What I hope this morning we come away with as we think about biblical discipleship and the task that God has given us to one another is this. Discipleship is all about abiding in Jesus. It's all about abiding in Jesus and getting a clearer picture of his glory and his love as we are transformed to be more and more like him. So as we see Jesus more clearly, more accurately, as we see his glory, as we see his love, we will become more and more like him. In other words, this is not a phrase uh, original to me, but we become what we behold. We become what we behold. The pathway to Christ-likeness, the pathway to discipleship, is in fact the pathway to joy. So we're looking for meaning and for purpose. We're looking for identity. Who are we who am I specifically? And I can either look in the things of this world, I can look in horizontal things, good things, but not ultimate things, or I can look vertically. I can look up at the Lord and find my identity there. We're going to read some, some uh, texts from Colossians to kind of set the stage and then tease this out in, in various areas of, of discipleship. So let's start with Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. Paul writes to the church of Colossae saying, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Skip down to verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together before we go any further. O Lord God, we come before you this morning humbled, because we recognize that we were citizens of the domain of darkness. 
Our hearts led us away from you and away from good things and righteous things towards sin and evil and ultimately towards the grave. And yet in your great kindness and your great grace, your great love for us, you transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sin. So everything we say this morning about growing in Christ's likeness, everything we say this morning about discipleship is founded on, it rests on the grace that we receive from the finished work of Jesus. Lord, we're not here to, to grow in Christ's likeness to show off achievements or to posture ourselves to be spiritually mature. No, we grow in Christ's likeness because we want Christ, because we identify with Him. So Lord, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit, You might change our hearts, You might reorder them in such a way that we long for You all the more dearly, that we see You all the more clearly, that we love You more affectionately. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So you see in Colossians chapter 1 that Paul wants the church in Colossae to not stand still. Just because they've been saved by God's grace through Christ, they're not done. It's not this one and done thing that now they just exist as Christians and can go on and do whatever they want. No, Paul has given them a task. He's saying, we want you. We're praying that God would do this in your life that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So Paul is saying, church in Colossae, you need to grow in your knowledge and your spiritual wisdom, in other words, your ability to discern the Spirit for this purpose, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that you might live your life in a way that honors Christ, that, that looks like Jesus. And that you're to do this together, bearing fruit in every good work and, in, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So don't miss this. Paul is saying that as you grow in your knowledge, you will then walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You put your knowledge to practice. And as you put your knowledge to practice and as you bear fruit, you will begin to increase all the more in your knowledge of God. So as you obey Christ's commands, as you practice Christ's likeness, you will grow in your knowledge of Him. As you grow in your knowledge of Him, you will have more, more wisdom to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, this is a back and forth thing. We're walking and we're growing in knowledge. We're walking and we're growing in knowledge. Now, discipleship is both big and small. So it's big, as in it's corporate, meaning it's church-wide. So, so what we're doing right now is discipleship. What we'll do at 1045 is discipleship. It's something that the church does as a body, but it's also personal, one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, all the time we see Paul talking about people like Onesimus or Timothy or Silas or Luke or Barnabas, these one-on-one -on -one relationships that Paul had with brothers in the faith. And people like Onesimus and Timothy and John Mark were like sons to him that he raised and helped grow in their sanctification. And that's exactly what discipleship is. So when we think about discipleship, 
All it is is, a, is the, the process of being sanctified. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Here, as we've already seen in Colossians 1, we see it as both increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We want the body of Christ to operate like Christ. In other words, we want the body and the head to be in sync, right? If my head and my body were not in sync, we would have a huge problem. Like if I wanted to, if I wanted to extend my right arm and my left leg went up, this would not be good. If I didn't have control over my body, and that's exactly what we want in the body of Christ. We want our head, we want the Lord Jesus to be in control of his body. And we do that through discipleship. It's all founded on the power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Now, look down to verse 28 in Colossians 1. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So yes, next week we will get to missions and evangelism. We want the world to know that Christ is Lord. We want the world to know that they can be saved from their sins by the finished work of Jesus on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. We want the world to become believers in the gospel, but we want believers to not simply be converts, but to be spiritually mature disciples who will be presented to the Lord. That's what we want. We're called as Christians to be disciples and to make disciples. So all of us are probably familiar with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So sharing the gospel and hearing a response of faith is wonderful. It's miraculous. It's incredible. It's unbelievable that God would have such kindness and grace, but it is not the end of the story. It's the beginning. We're called to be discipled. So how do we do this? How do we grow up as Christians? How do we do this as a church? And why do we need each other? Why does Paul seem to say that this is a church endeavor? Well, let's look at three spheres in which discipleship takes place. And hopefully you'll see this almost as a roadmap. But remember, it's not just A to B. Remember this Colossians 1, 9 and 10? It's this back and forth. It's this spiral of discipleship. So first, let's see about growing up through the Word. Growing up through the Word. If you're taking notes this morning, that's our first point. First, we want to grow up through the Word. We have to know the Word to be changed by the Word. So in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, as we've already read, I can't obey what I don't know. I can't walk in a manner worthy of the Lord if I don't know what that manner is. So I have to learn what God has revealed to us in His Word. My knowledge of Scripture must increase. So students, we read and we study and we memorize the Bible. The Psalms tell us that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that it's more valuable to us than gold. Why? Because in it, we find the path of life. When we read Scripture, we hear God speak. It's His Word. So we saturate ourselves in the Scriptures by ourselves and with others. Because I have to learn how to feed myself. If I grow up and am constantly being fed by my mom and dad, 
then I'm not going to have a great time for the rest of my life. I'm constantly going to be dependent on somebody else to do what I ought to be able to do. And in the same way as Christians, it is wonderful that you have pastors and teachers and equipping group leaders and table leaders who come alongside you and lead and guide, but your role as a follower of Jesus includes being able to feed yourself the Word. If I'm going to become mature in Christ, I have got to take ownership of my biblical knowledge. It's not something that I pawn off to Aaron. It's not something that I pawn off to Brother Al. It's not something that I pawn off to my equipping leader. It is mine. My responsibility for myself to know God's Word. And that's the regular rhythm of Bible intake. This isn't deep dives into the the, the caverns of of theology and, and difficulties in Scripture. This is just, do you know what Colossians is about? Do you know what Ezra is about? Do you know who Nehemiah is? Now, this is biblical literacy. So not only do we do this together, but as we learn how to feed ourselves together, we do well to read, meditate, study, and memorize together. Because I may have gaps in my knowledge that you know how to fill. So we gather together to read the Scriptures and to study the Bible. And I may come to the table with things you haven't thought of, and you may come to the table with things that I haven't thought of. And the Spirit of God is able to increase our knowledge of His Word through one another's faithfulness. This is how members of the body can love and serve one another as we grow in biblical literacy. So don't miss this, because you'll hear this over and over and over again. God is not using your faithfulness to Himself only for you. He is using your faithfulness to Him for many. And the the, the joy and the anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth needs to include for you and to me this fact. That we have no idea how the Spirit of God is using our obedience to His Word to impact and transform and change many around us. You don't know that 30 years from now, your kindness and your prayer for a friend is exactly what they remember when they're in their time of deep, deep struggle. You don't know that the conversation that you had over the lunch table introducing someone to Jesus would be picked up 40 years later when that person's family leaves him and they wonder, What is there to life? But they remember that conversation that they had with a student in ninth grade about how they've given their whole life to this God, this Father, Son, and Spirit, that this gospel they've believed in. You don't know how God is using your faithfulness to grow up more than you. We also grow by our intake of the Word through preaching. So your pastors think and pray and study and write and revise and on and on and on so that they might present a spirit-filled, Christ-exalting, God-revealing meal for you to eat every week. There are many people who have sat under Brother Al's preaching for over 40 years. And during that time, think of this, they have heard the majority of Scripture read and explained and applied. That takes time. But what a legacy that they can look back and say, I have sat under sound preaching and have heard the vast majority of this Bible explained to me. 
We also grow up in the word through fellowship that's full of giving and receiving the truth of God's word. Our relationships should be steeped in scripture. So maybe I'm anxious about something going on in my family. Or maybe I'm, I'm nervous or stressed out about something that's going on at school. The fellowship that I enjoy with a brother or sister may lead them to remind me about what the Bible says about worry and anxiety. But they can't share that with me if they don't know it. I can cast all my anxieties on the Lord, Peter tells me, because God cares for me. And sometimes I just can't see clearly, so I need my brothers and my sisters, the ones that I have developed fellowship with, to come alongside me and to point out what God's Word has said that I know I just can't recall because of my sin, because of my lack of perspective, because of whatever reason. Through fellowship, our biblical literacy produces fruit. It helps us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Finally, we grow in our knowledge of the Word. We grow up through the Word as we offer prayer that is saturated with Scripture. So when I'm alone, I can use Scripture as a guide, as a tool, as a launch pad for my prayers. I mean, often, if you've been a part of prayer meetings or you've been a part of different things here at Lakeview, we use the Psalms all the time as a, as a launch pad for prayer. That's a really good practice. And when I'm with a body of believers, we can use that Word as a structure for corporate prayer. So we can walk through verse by verse and use it as a, as a way, as a scheme for us to speak to the Lord. Because we know that when we're praying God's Word, we're praying well. And over time, by meditating and interceding by way of the Scriptures, it will transform the prayer life of the people of God. So if we committed to pray together through Scripture, maybe as a small group, or maybe as a table group, and we said, every week, we're going to spend some time praying through Scripture. Or you might say for yourself, every afternoon or every time I go to lunch or every time I go to brush my teeth, I'm going to read a, a psalm and I'm going to pray through that time. Or maybe not every time. Even if you said, once a week, I'm going to do that. Do you think it would have an effect on your literacy in the Word? Do you think it would have an effect on how you live your life? Absolutely. So we grow up through the Word. But the Bible says many things at many times and many places that, if we're honest, are a little bit harder to understand than just reading the text and moving on. Discipleship not only seeks to become familiar with the Bible's story, but on the doctrines that it reveals. So the second point for us this morning is that we are growing up through doctrine. We're growing up through doctrine. We have to move from biblical literacy understanding what the Bible says to theological accuracy, what it means. What has God revealed about himself? What has God revealed about creation? What has God revealed about you and me? What has God revealed about the church? This is what we're doing this semester as we think through the doctrine of the church. And if we believe that our one true God has communicated himself to us through His Word, then we will be able to, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, collect and organize those teachings into doctrines that we can understand and use. So again, look at Colossians chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10. As we grow in knowledge, we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. <coughs> but as we walk, we are increasing in the knowledge of God. 
So as we go down this spiral of increasing in knowledge and spiritual wisdom and walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, we will begin to form our theology. We will begin to form our doctrine. And the truth is, everyone is a theologian. Everyone is someone who has thoughts about God. Everyone, not just everyone in the church, everyone. Every person you have ever met is a theologian. Now, many of them are really bad theologians. It should not be our aim to be bad theologians. We want to be good theologians. The task of theology for you and for me is to organize our thoughts in order to accurately state what the Christian faith means so that we might love the Lord with our whole selves. We do not increase in knowledge for the sake of knowledge. We increase in knowledge so that we can more accurately and deeply love the one who has revealed himself to us. John Webster, who is way smarter than probably any of us will ever be, says it like this. Dogmatics, which is another word for theology, is that delightful activity in which the church praises God by ordering its thinking towards the gospel of Christ. For those of you who think, man, theology is hard, it's difficult, I don't even know where to start, there's so many things I have to think about and have put these things all together, it's like, it's like I'm trying to put together a puzzle and I've never seen the picture on the box, so I don't even know what I'm doing. Remember what Webster says here, that theology is the delightful activity. It is something that should lead you to joy in which the church praises God by ordering its thinking towards the gospel. Theology is worship. Doing the task of learning the doctrines of our faith is worship. So how do we do it? How do we learn theology? Well, we learn theology fundamentally as the church through the preaching of the word. Because as the preacher explains and applies the Bible, the sermon will be dripping with theology. So when we listen to preaching, it ought to affirm or challenge or replace or extend our own doctrine. We ought to be confronted with what we believe about God or what we believe about our sin or what we believe about the world when we hear the word of God explained. We grow in our doctrine through discussing and thinking about what we believe and why in the context of fellowship. So I need you, and you need me, and you need each other. I would, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I would dare say that if you ask most of the adults in this room, if not all, they would say that probably one of the most formative times of their life was when they were in college talking to the ones that they loved the most about who God is whether it was college Bible studies or hanging out with their roommates in their apartments or whatever it was, it was that time where there were people that they knew and loved and trusted who also knew and loved Jesus and they gathered together to figure out what is it that we even believe. So here's the, here's the, here's the pitch for you and me, or not for me, it's, I'm, I'm overdue, but for you. You don't have to wait till college to do that. You don't have to wait till your 30s to do that. You can do that now. You have an opportunity as, a, as an 8th grader, as a ninth grader, as an 11th grader, as a, as a youth to have these discussions start to brew among your friend groups so that you might lead one another to right thinking about the God who is supreme. 
And hopefully this should be the regular rhythm of your table groups and your equipping groups to see that our doctrines are being shaped in community as we come to the Bible or to the creed on Wednesday nights or to some other trustworthy source of Christian truth that we go through throughout the year. The task of theology in community leads us to ask questions we normally wouldn't ask. We might see things from perspectives we don't always have and more. The Spirit, we should trust, is at work in all of us, teaching all of us, revealing truth to all of us, producing a church whose knowledge of God is collectively growing and being refined. We also grow in doctrine, not just through fellowship, not just through preaching, but by praying for clarity and insight. Guys, we need God to show Himself. We need Him to reveal Himself. And we need the Spirit's work of illumination, of opening our eyes so that we might see and understand how all these puzzle pieces fit together. The work of theology is a work of dependence on the goodness of God as He leads us into all truth. Now, that isn't to say that there's never tension or mystery or difficulty in theology. I mean, you start reading the Bible, and it won't be long before you come up to something that you're going, I just don't know how this works. I don't know how to put this together. I don't know how I can reconcile this thing with this thing. I don't know how I can reconcile what Paul says about faith without works being what justifies me with what James says about faith without works being dead. I I don't know how to put that together. That's okay. That's okay. There most certainly is tension and mystery in theology because we have a poor perspective on the truth. But what I am saying is that as we grow in our understanding of the faith that we confess, we will be able to more greatly appreciate the truth of the gospel and all that is revealed in the scriptures. That we won't start to see that tension and mystery as an opportunity to doubt or to be frustrated, or to wander off into despair, but it would lead us to worship. Because when Paul is thinking about how do we reconcile the decree that he's given to bless Israel and the the decree that he has has made in eternity past to choose some to to be saved and some not to be saved in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and the task of missions to go out because how will they believe in him of whom they never heard, and all of these things being put together, what does that lead Paul to do? Well, you read the end of Romans 11 and it leads him to worship. Oh, the height and depth and riches of the love of God. Who can can explain these things? It leads us to marvel. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, as we grow in our knowledge of doctrine, it will give us the capacity to marvel better. So, So here's what I mean. Most of you have met my brother, Josh. He didn't know I'm going to use him for this. It's okay. Josh is a band director at Auburn Junior High. He is a graduate student at Auburn University studying music. So he's getting his master's degree in music. He knows things about music that I don't know. He has experienced things in music that I've not experienced. He has been able to, to, to see the nuance of things that are happening, not just in here's this song by this person, but why would you make decisions about this orchestration and arrangement versus versus this orchestration and arrangement? And why would you pick this key over this key? And why would you make this movement this many minutes long and not this many minutes long? And he has a kind of grasp on the 
the, 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 the sphere of music that I just don't have. But I like music. And so on more than one occasion, Josh and I have gone to concerts. And we've seen really talented musicians produce really wonderful music. Now, we could leave that concert and say, man, did we have a good time? Yeah, I had a great time. But there is a kind of level of appreciation and experience and understanding that Josh has in that concert that I, I don't even know exists. That isn't to say that we both didn't have a great time. We had a great time. We, our capacities to enjoy the thing before us were both filled. We were satisfied. But the thing being filled and satisfied for Aaron at that concert was like a, like a Coke can. And the thing being filled and satisfied for Josh at that concert was like a swimming pool. They were both filled. But they are different. And students, the the offer to you and me as we grow in our knowledge of God and His Word, as we grow in our understanding of what doctrine is and what right doctrine means, our capacity to marvel at the glories of God will grow. It's not to say that a new Christian who confesses faith in Christ and then untimely dies and goes to heaven will not have full joy before the presence of the Lord, but it is to say that their capacity to understand and marvel at who God is will be different than one who has spent a lifetime cultivating faithfulness. So don't wait. Don't wait to begin to cultivate your capacity to marvel at who God is. I live with very few regrets in my life. And one of the regrets that I have, and if you ask the adults in the room, they probably would agree, one of the few regrets in my my life that I have is that when I was younger, I wasted so much time. I just wasted it. I squandered it on things that will not satisfy for, for eternity. I was storing up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven. So we grow up through the word, we grow up through doctrine, and then thirdly and finally, to kind of put the puzzle together from Colossians 1, we are growing up through practice. We're growing up through practice. We must go from biblical literacy to theological accuracy so that we can go to faithful living. It is not enough for us to just increase in knowledge. Paul tells us about that kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge that puffs up. It turns into arrogance and pride but a knowledge that then flows out into godly living pleases God. Now, how do we cultivate a godly heart? Well, it's not through growing our brains. It's through putting what our brains know into practice. Habits are the way in which our hearts are moved. We aren't just brains. The answer to every question is not just, read this book or listen to this sermon or watch this video, although I think all of those things are super important and helpful, and I will tell you that regularly. But if all you do is acquire knowledge for your own sake, you're not living as a full person. You're living, as one writer put it, like a brain on a stick, which is to say not a whole person. (laughs) Now find Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 
This is what he writes in verse 1. He says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul sets the stage and says, look, since you have been crucified with Christ and have been raised in new life with him, and Christ is now above, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above. So set your thoughts on Christ and on eternal things, because when Christ appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So you want your affection, you want your purpose, you want your desires to be tied to him rather than the world. Why? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So he's saying, I want you to set your minds on things above, set your thoughts there so that you can put your sin to death. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. See, seeing that you have been put, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, city and slave, free, but Christ is all, and in all. As you put your sin to death, you are putting off the old self so that you can put on your new self in Christ. Where should your identity be? Not in your works, not in your family, not in your school, not in your church. It should be in Christ. Because your work and your family and your school and your church and your relationships will ultimately, always, inevitably fail you and let you down. Because none of those things are perfect. And none of those things were made to hold the weight of your identity. But if you put on Christ, you can have confidence that He will not let you down because His work is already finished. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which Indeed, you were called into one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is Paul's point. So you need to marvel at who God is. You need to know His Word. You need to put His teachings together in doctrines that you can understand and grasp. You need to put your sins to death so you might live a life that's pleasing to God. So that you might honor Him with your whole life. So that you might put those things that you've learned into practice. When we put off the old self 
and put on the new self, we recognize that we are living a habitual life. This is a practice that will continue until you die or until Jesus comes back. Every day. It's almost like when Jesus says, every day you take up your cross and follow me. That this isn't a one-time thing that once you've done it once, it's over. It is every day I am putting my old self to death. And as I grow in biblical literacy, and as I grow in my knowledge of doctrine, perhaps my practices will be more invigorated, will be more effective. Perhaps those things that seem unnatural and difficult and awkward for us may become less difficult and less hard and less awkward because I've put the practice on of putting on the new self. We practice this Christian life together. As a church, we practice regular rhythms. We participate in corporate worship and especially the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These affect us deeply over time. That when I get up on my own and go into that room and say, I need to see and hear from God today. And I'll find that here. Do that for 30 years and see if that doesn't affect the way that you live. We regularly sit under preaching with the intent to meet Christ in the Word and be changed by the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. There comes a time when this shifts from being the obligation of a child in a Christian household to being the responsibility of an adult. So don't miss this. There is every opportunity for you and every stat against you that when you graduate and move on from this place, you will fall away. That you will not see Christ as supremely worthy of your time, of your affection, of your resources, of your investment, of your life, and so you'll fall away. Don't think for a moment that not investing your life in the rhythms of church gatherings, in the, in the rhythms of church practice, don't think for a moment that not doing those things won't wreak havoc in your spiritual growth. We practice discipleship by enjoying, suffering with, bearing with, and growing with others in fellowship. So I may have this wonderful knowledge that I have accrued about how to trust in God's promises and His faithfulness in the midst of suffering, how I've put together this understanding of God's sovereignty and providence over all things so that even what seems evil, Genesis 50, 20, what God, uh, what, what people mean for evil, God intends for good, that He's able to use even the craziest, most heinous, most wicked things, Acts chapter 4, even the death of Jesus, the Son of God, to bring about good and glorious things for His people. I might know those things, and then a friend comes to me and says, my mom just died, and I don't know what to do. And it's one thing for me to have this puzzle put together in my brain. It's quite another thing to then show someone who God is in the midst of their suffering. So that they might see that puzzle too. They might not see all the pieces. But what if God has allowed you to endure difficult things 
He's taught you difficult lessons so that you might be used by Him to bring healing and comfort, to remind someone in your life of His faithfulness and His goodness and His kindness and His love towards you. It's not enough that you just accrue the knowledge. We, we put this into practice. It isn't just hard, sad, difficult things. It's also enjoying. When, when my dear friends have something to celebrate, if I love them and if I have a good enough knowledge of God's Word and doctrine to say that I can enjoy the blessings of God in someone else with them, then my celebration with them is not inauthentic, my celebration of their, of their good deeds, of their blessing, of their promotion, of their marriage, of their children, or whatever it is that, that they have, even if I want it, is no longer this like, oh yeah, I'm happy for you. While inside I'm actually filled with disgust and envy. But no, my, my understanding of God giving blessings out as He sees fit can actually be an opportunity for me to truly celebrate with my brother and my sister. That their, their joy might be multiplied. As I grow in Christ's likeness, as you grow in Christ's likeness, we see that we are able to use the gifts that God has given us to serve one another. And when we do those things, we will collectively, as members of the body, grow more closely to the head who is Christ. We practice discipleship by confessing sin to God and to one another. If we cannot be open and honest about a fact that we all agree on, that we are all sinners in need of grace, if we can't be open and honest about that here among the body of Christ, something's terribly wrong. I mean, every one of us in the room knows that every one of us has sin. Every one of us in the room knows that every one of us has struggles and temptations and frustrations and failures that they don't want to talk about even from this week. All 100%. None of you passed that test. I didn't pass that test. And yet we will live as though we all passed the test. Something's off. We confess our sins one to another. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession and pride are bitter enemies. So put it to death. Recognize that when you confess your sin, when you're open and honest about your struggles, you have brothers and sisters who may have what you need to come alongside you so that you might have victory over that sin and temptation. So that you might receive mercy and grace in your time of need. We grow in practice by praying with others. And by praying by ourselves. Just the act of prayer, actually, if we think about it, is a confession that we are dependent on God. And as we pray with others, the discipline of prayer becomes more natural to us. Just like how a baby learns to talk by being around people who talk. Being around people who pray will help us to learn how to pray. 
Finally, we grow in practice by sharing our faith with others. Now, this is kind of a teaser for next week on missions and evangelism, but for now, we need to see that if we are ambassadors to the kingdom of God, if you and I are chosen by God to be heralds, sent to proclaim a message, then we will grow in Christ's likeness partly by obeying His command to go and tell. So in all things, as the body of Christ, we want to worship God. That is our ultimate, supreme, foundational task. We worship God. And God is praised when His body knows His Word and grasps His doctrine and lives out His commands. This is the life that we have been called to. You and I are disciples, followers of Christ. So let's commit to follow Him together as He leads the way for His church. Let me pray for you. Father, You are infinitely above anything that we could ever hope or imagine. And your kindness to us is wrapped up in your infinity. Your grace towards us, your love towards us, all of these things that you have showered on us through blessing. So Lord, help us to respond in worship by knowing your word, by putting that word together so that we might understand it and reorder our thinking towards the gospel through doctrine. And Lord, let those things that fill up our minds travel down to our hearts and to our hands as we put them into practice as the people of God. What a mighty God we serve. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And Peter tells us in his letter, in your word, that we have everything we need for life. We have everything we need for godliness because we have your Spirit. So Lord, let today be the day for us to commit ourselves by your grace, by your power, in obedience to your command to listen to what you've said, to know what has been written, to obey what you've commanded. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.